Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network Jewish Studies channel. I'm your host, Rora Rusi, Executive Director of Unity Through Diversity Institute, where we explore the future of our heritage. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Our website is unitytdiversity.com. That's unity, the letter T, diversity.com. Today, we're really delighted to speak with Professor Aviva Ben-Or of the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Just over a year ago, we spoke on the New Books Network about Jewish autonomy in a slave society, Suriname in the Atlantic world. For those who have yet to hear it, please do look it up. We are joined today by her co-editor, Professor Wim Kluster of Clark University. And we will discuss, be discussing their book, Jewish Entanglements in the Atlantic World, Cornell University Press, 2023. Together, they edited this book that breaks down ground on a new focus in Jewish history. We will discuss that in the interview. So welcome, Professor Kluster and Professor Van Uhr, and thank you for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, you're welcome. Okay, I don't like to give the interview and in introductions. I prefer that you do. So if you could each introduce yourself more with um, your background and how this applies to your background. Well, I can begin, and I am a historian by training. And we came to this book because of our common interest in Atlantic history. So I trained early on in American Jewish history. Well, actually, first broader Jewish history, then American Jewish history, then um, all the time focusing on Sephardic studies. And in large part, because of my scholarly collaborator, I came upon Atlantic history and decided to explore it in a Jewish key. So that is my brief bio. I've been at the University of Massachusetts Amherst since 2000. Okay, Vim? Yes, and um, I'm Dutch originally. I did my dissertation at the University of Leiden and then came to the United States. And around the time I arrived in the United States, Atlantic history was developing as a field. And uh, I was very much part of that. Um, and so the idea that the United States is part of a much larger world and has undergone influences from a much larger world that stretches um, to Europe, that stretches to South America, to Africa. Um, so the idea of Atlantic history is to, to zoom out from just you know North America and in the colonial period from from the Eastern Seaboard and to see uh, the area in which you know um, the, the North Americans lived as part of a much larger world. Um, and um, as a Dutch scholar, I, you know, I've worked a lot on, um, on the Dutch Atlantic world. I've worked on other themes as well, including smuggling and revolutions. But the Dutch Atlantic um, has become a major focus. I wrote a big book about it. And when you write about that topic, it's very clear how important uh, Jews have been in developing the Dutch colonial world in, in colonies like Suriname and Curaçao. Um, the Jews made up you know, around one third of the white population. There may have been one third of the of the European population in Dutch Brazil as well, where a Jewish life, you might say, in the Americas got started in the 1630s. Um, so that's more or less my background. Okay. So you wanted to zoom out. Let's zoom out first to the cover of the book and the title of the book. Uh, it's an interesting title, Jewish Entanglements in the Atlantic World. So we know you both came to the Atlantic World from different angles a little bit. Let's talk about the concept of entanglement and also the picture is a very unique picture. So if you can talk about that a bit and I'll leave it up to you who wants to start. Yes, yeah, so 
over the course of my career, and here's a little more bio for you, I've become increasingly interested in moving away from Jewish history. And I've been experimenting, and this book in part is an experiment with moving away from Jews as a central topic, but still doing Jewish history. So in other words, taking this minority community, Jews who are a minority almost everywhere in the world, and seeing what broader light of, on history they can shed. So it's very counterintuitive. It's kind of like decentering Jews, but still doing Jewish history. And the most important thing for me also was to put Jews on the same plane as other historical actors. So entanglements, of course, means how Jews were had very close ties to other population groups, to the structures of mainstream society. And if, if you take Jewish history from that perspective, one of the realizations is that Jewish, Jewishness is less consequential than we might have thought. One example of that is the essay of Holly Snyder on the Canadian provinces, and she looked at Ezekiel Hart, a Jewish leader who was twice elected to Lower Canada's Legislative Assembly, and he was barred from taking office. The traditional narrative of that has the, has been that it was because of anti-Semitism. But she looks at the broader geography and the broader what was going on, the context, and she finds actually the, the um, dismissal of him from taking office was probably more based on local realities and interpersonal alliances and anti-Jewishness took a backseat to that. So that, that, I think, is a really important approach because, specifically because Jews have always been a minority almost everywhere they have settled. And therefore, the obligation of us on scholars is to put the spotlight on the broader community and on the non-Jewish groups with which the Jews interacted. And I can say more, but I'll let you take it from there. Okay, well, I'll deal with the, with the art, with the kofar art. Um, the the artist is interesting in itself, and I think it's it says a lot about the Dutch Empire that I just mentioned because it was a multinational empire. Um, when you look at the the soldiers and the sailors, um, a very large part of them are not Dutch at all. And the man who made uh, this uh, watercolor, uh, Zacharias Wagner, was actually a German, uh, and yet despite the fact that he was not a Dutch national, he became uh, the head later on of the Dutch colony in South Africa, the Cape Colony, uh, and also of the Dutch colony in Japan. The Dutch were the only ones, the only Europeans in Japan for a very long time, and they were located um, in, in Deshima, just uh, next to Nagasaki, actually. Uh, so this man goes on to have a major career after his time in Dutch Brazil. So he lives in Dutch Brazil, uh, one of the many artists and scientists invited by the Dutch governor, there to to settle um, and around 1641 he depicts this particular street which was called the street of the jews was perhaps nicknamed the street of the jews but what's significant is that it wasn't just called the street of the jews as you can see in this image it's also the place where newly arrived africans were auctioned off as slaves and um, i mean we don't spend much time, I think, in the book at all, um, talking about this. In particular, Jews were involved in selling uh, newly arriving slaves to planters in the hinterland, often Portuguese planters in, in Brazil. Um, the 
article, um, you know, uh, that was um, written in the book by Victor Tiribas on uh, Jewish soldiers in Dutch Brazil. Initially, this was just meant to illustrate that particular chapter, but we decided uh, to make it the cover of the book as well. First of all, because there are very few images about Jews in the Atlantic world in this period. But secondly, it's also important to show uh, Jews in Brazil and also Jews as um, having a role in the Atlantic slave trade. And when you talk about entanglements, that's definitely an entanglement. <laughs> um, so let's, I also found it fascinating that this came as the result of a workshop that you started. And it's interesting. I'm seeing more and more of this. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, a number of years ago, this was before, right before COVID, um, a colleague of mine who runs um, Jewish studies at Clark University, Everett Fox, he's, he's a well-known um, Bible scholar, um, he told me that there was a, a budget for Jewish studies, and he asked me if I wanted to organize something, and I asked him how much you know there was in that budget, and he told me, well, there's enough to, to do a workshop, uh, which meant I could fly in people. Mm -hmm. And so it meant I, I organized this workshop and I invited Aviva, who as you may know is my wife, um, although I don't think about this as nepotism because she is a scholar who does Jewish Atlantic Most history. Most definitely. Um, so this is, it, it's a small field, Jewish Atlantic history, um, and we were five people at that uh, workshop at Clark, a one-day workshop, and... What sometimes happens, and I've been at these meetings uh, when you have a panel and the talks are wonderful, the discussions are great, and then at the end of the day you realize this may all be ephemeral unless we do something, unless we try to to keep what we have, to, to ask the contributing scholars to provide you know, uh, a reflection of what they did um, but hopefully then, you know, in the book form. So we started thinking about a book, but then you need more than just those four or five. That's not a book. That's a journal issue, but not a book. So we invited more people that we knew of both established senior scholars, but also younger scholars that were, you know, um, at least two, perhaps three PhD students who ended up in the book who now we do may have more established positions. But uh, And so we rounded it all off, and I think... Um, hopefully there is enough cohesion in the book. It's all early modern period plus the 19th century. Um, and we did not want to emphasize, and perhaps Aviva can say a little more about that. We didn't want to emphasize the, the 20th century too much because suddenly in American Jewish history, there's an overemphasis on the, on the 20th century and not on the earlier period. And it's perhaps also interesting for scholars and, and the public in general, you know, to see... Um, Jewish activities in the Atlantic world in a much earlier period, in the 17th, 18th century. And not only that, but the Atlantic world ends around the mid-19th century, so it would be inappropriate to reach out to scholars of 20th or 21st century America or Americas hemispherically. I also want to emphasize how difficult it was to find contributors. There really are no scholars who identify as Atlantic Jewish historians. I might be an exception, but from what I've seen, so it's not like you could Google, oh, who specializes in Atlantic Jewish mm -hmm. history? You had to reach out to people and say, hey, you are potentially part of this developing movement in the scholarly world. Your methods, 
your time period, your archival research, it all speaks to what we're trying to start here. Would you like to collaborate with us? And hopefully it will be a snowball effect. And I also suspected that there were probably a lot of scholars we overlooked just because of this lack of self-identification as an Atlantic Jewish historian. And so hopefully people will now come out of the woodwork too. Right. And a, quite a bit of the book happens to be about the definitions and explaining this Atlantic Jewish um, concept, if if you will. So uh, can you talk a little bit about what well, you talked a little bit about it, but expand a little about the what's unique about the Atlantic Jewish history and uh, why we need these new definitions and these new places? Well, I, I began thinking about this in terms of terminology. Terminology has always been really important for me. There is the, the emic terminology, so that is observation and analysis of a group of, by a group member, or the etic approach, analysis and observation of a group from an outsider. And for this reason, terminology is really important for me. I think that the emic view is extremely central, and that's one of my motivations for being a archivally focused scholar. So I began with terminology, and one of the things that I realized over the course of my research for my book, Jewish Autonomy in a Slave Society, is that Jews of Iberian ancestry in the Atlantic world, they never called themselves Sephardic Jews. And I thought that that was pretty momentous because the field only calls them Sephardic Jews. It's extremely rare to find a scholar of the 20th or 21st century who says a Portuguese Jew or a Portuguese and Spanish congregation. And I thought that was consequential. And indeed, what, what I found, not, not only in the course of, of this book, but my previous scholarship too, is that the term Sephardic only emerged in the mid-19th century after the Atlantic world gave way to globalism. The important thing about Portuguese Jew is that their first language was Portuguese and sometimes also or instead Spanish, but their identity was was deeply Portuguese. They continued to speak this language until the 19th century in many areas of the Atlantic world. And that connected them to an Iberian diaspora, especially a Portuguese diaspora that straddled the borders between Jewish and, and non-Jewish so that that they even have some prayers that they continue to sing in um, Portuguese. So Portuguese seeped into the prayer service, into the synagogue services. Portuguese and and especially Spanish was which was considered a more elevated language. If you look at Hebrew publications on the title pages or rabbinical literature, sometimes you will see them referred to and even self-referring to as Sephardim, which would be Sephardic. But what I think that is, is really an internal rabbinical conversation so that they could be recognized rabbinically by Ashkenazi Jews. So that if they called themselves Portuguesim, it would sound like a non-Jew. So instead, they yes, for ritual, for response to literature, for uh, book title covers of prayer books and pious literature, they would, yes, use the word Sefaradim in Hebrew. But you do not see this word in, in Latin letters you, I've never found it, in fact, before the mid-19th century. And then the entanglements continue with the, like you were saying, the Spanish or the Portuguese come in. And I, I see in the research, also, you mentioned that there are many different languages that have to come in. And maybe that's why people aren't focusing on the Jewish Atlantic world, because it's just 
it's quite difficult <laughs> um, when you're dealing with historiography and languages. Um, so is this, do you think it's unique to this area of study? Do you think it plays into the? No, I don't think it's unique. I mean, um, we have at my university, um, Center of Holocaust and Genocide Studies and the PhD students there all, before they even start their research, have to um, take an exam in, in two languages. And that's not English or, or, or German, but it's usually like Polish or Russian or, you know, whatever other languages in Central and Eastern Europe. Um, when you study the Balkans, and this is um, for both Jewish and non-Jewish historians, you need to, to be, you know, um, to, to know languages, I don't know, four, five, six different languages in order to make sense of what's going on there. So it's not unusual. I think what is what is unusual, I'm saying this as perhaps a bit of an outsider, as, as a European, as a Dutchman, where we live, you know, between all these different language groups and we're bound to know these other languages because nobody ever speaks Dutch. Um, but when I look at um, people who uh, are active in the field of American history, I'm struck by the fact that almost everybody is monolingual. Yeah. And that, I think, is unusual, uh, both uh, in, in scholarly terms, but even you know, in, in social terms. Wherever you go in the world, um, people you know, have more than one language. It, it's, it tends to be in those areas where English is the main language, like New Zealand or Australia or Great Britain or the United States, where you find exceptions. But everywhere else, almost everywhere else, people are multilingual. And I would like to add that I think the a foundational expectation of Jewish studies, certainly Jewish history, is knowledge of Hebrew, at the very least. When you study an ethnic group, whatever it is, especially if it's a diaspora group, you need to know the original language. So if you're studying the Armenian diaspora, you need to know a little bit of Armenian, even if you're dealing with Iran, the Armenian community of Iran. And I thought that that is extremely important to know Hebrew uh, also rabbinical Hebrew, which means also a knowledge of Aramaic. And the sources of Atlantic history are very frequently in Dutch and Portuguese and Spanish. These are the foundational languages for doing Atlantic history in an original way. If you want to do new archival research, mm -hmm. which for me is a driving force of the field, we can't simply repeat secondary literature. We need to to excavate surprises from the archives that will change our minds, that will deepen our knowledge. And I, I also thought that perhaps Judeo-Arabic would be important because there were small communities in North Africa which bordered a little bit on the Atlantic world. They were mostly tuned into the Mediterranean sphere, but they did have connections to Amsterdam. And a little bit of work has been done, for example, on Algerian Jewish merchants, Algerian Jewish merchants who were were corresponding in Judeo-Arabic. This is really important work, even, even if it ends up confirming to us that North African Jewry is not linked to the Atlantic world is still extremely important. So my idea is the more languages, the better. It's actually one of the reasons why I studied Arabic so that I could branch out to new archives. Yep, I feel very much the same. Um, but um, let's go back to something you mentioned before about being accepted as Jews by the Ashkenazim, which the hierarchy we're not going to get into here because you don't necessarily talk about it as much in this book, but um, the concept of being accepted as Jews. But one of the things that this book does bring or you, is brought up in this book is the marriages between new Christians and old Christians and the mixing of bloodlines. Um, and often 
it's just not talked about. <laughs> so I'm asking you to talk about it a little bit. <laughs> yeah, this is one another foundational idea in the introduction that that we co-wrote together. And if you look at the historiography, so writing about new Christians, so Jews whose ancestors were forcibly converted to Christianity in 1391 in Spain and in 1497 in Portugal, if you look at that literature, there is an overarching assumption that, that all of them have undivided Jewish ancestry. All of these new Christians, all of their ancestors are Jewish, but they had been forcibly converted to Christianity and had lived as Christians for, for centuries. But if you look at any inquisitorial family tree, and if you also just use your logic, this is quite impossible. There was always intermarriage and, you know, extramarital sexual activity, reproductive sexual activity over the boundaries of communities, of religious communities. And also there's a, an amazing article by a scholar called Rowland who found, he looked at inquisitorial trials of the 17th century, and he found out that the, the people, ostensibly new Christian, who were brought to trial, when the Inquisition did an investigation as to the genealogy of these people, about 4% had 100% Jewish ancestry, only 4%. Everybody else was a mix, three quarters, one quarter, um, uh, part Jewish. And so, and so it is just, it's illogical to think that Jewishness as an ethnicity was indivisible in a time of forced conversion and centuries of living as Christians. Then the second mythology that I tried to dispel in the part of the introduction that I wrote is the idea of indestructible Jewishness, that even though the person might have a mixed ancestry, Christian and Jewish, it was the Jewish side of the family that predominated and prevailed over the identity of the person and informed every aspect of their lives. This is, a, this is also logically impossible but it's also been refuted very powerfully by scholars like Bruno Feitler, who, who I also cited. So just to stop, to end this, this point with one example, Santa Teresa de Avila of the 16th century, a nun, the scholars in the second half of the 20th century discovered that she had, quote unquote, one Jewish grandfather, and therefore she was a crypto-Jew and therefore, all of her mystical ideas and writings were informed by her Jewish ancestry. But if you look closely at that, he wasn't Jewish. It, we don't know if he had Jewish ancestry. The grandfather. We, the grandfather. We know that he ran afoul of the Inquisition. A lot of people ran afoul of the Inquisition. And even if he were of Jewish ancestry, does that mean that her the Jewish strain of her ancestry was indestructible and it was the, the most important thing in forming herself, her writing, it's just logically inconsistent. Which often that's how our research evolves, right? Is when you start with logically seeing inconsistencies, you see there's has to be something behind it. So I want to make sure we have time to focus on each of your particular chapters. So I'm going to skip ahead to that. Thank you very much for the talk about the introduction. There is a lot more in this book. Obviously, we're only scratching the surface. But if that's okay, Vim, I'd like to start with... Um, with your chapter, and you note that there's no pan-Atlantic study of how the Jews themselves participated in the revolutions across the Atlantic during this time period. 
Why do you think that is? And why do you think that's important for us to know? Uh, it's important to know, first of all, because the age of revolutions, I think, is very important. It's often seen as the, as the beginning of modernity, as the um, the time when countries on both sides of the Atlantic begin to experiment with democracy, when equality before the law is established, which, of course, is very important for Jewish communities everywhere because it means the end of tolerance and the beginning of, of complete emancipation. Now, what you see uh, in this period in the historiography on the Jews is that um, there are studies of Jewish emancipation and then that those tend to be of a much longer um, stretch where the age of revolutions is just a chapter. Um, there are also studies of individual localities, the Jews of Bordeaux or the Jews of Rome or the Jews of Amsterdam in this particular period. Um, but in general, what I've noticed over the years is that the comparative history is really rare. And in order to do this, you once again need to you know, read many different languages. And also, and that's not insignificant either, you need to involve yourself in many different historiographies. It's not just reading different languages, but also to try to make sense of what kinds of debates are going on in the different fields. Um, and then I think, you know, one particular strain in, in Jewish historiography is victimhood, um, which you see also reflected in this period, Jews as, as um, people who might be beneficiaries of equal rights, but at the same time are still often victims. And whether you are beneficiary of rights or a victim, it still means you're passive. And what I was interested in was what do Jews do themselves? How are they agents? Because history is, of course, about making changes to your own world and, and beyond, and not just being on the receiving end. Um, so, and what I realized is, yes, there are studies of Jews in the American Revolution, Jews in, in the French Revolution. But really, I don't think anybody has, has brought this into one cohesive story. So, you know, I think there would certainly be a book in this as well. But I tried to confine myself to, to just an article. And what you see then is that Jews, on the one hand, are very busily involved trying to make sure that the equality that is now um, forthcoming from the different revolutionary governments is genuinely theirs, is, is being upheld, is enforced. Um, and also that Jews are trying to be involved in these revolutions beyond just their own Jewish community. At the same time that there are significant numbers of Jews, perhaps even the majority in a town like Amsterdam, who are not interested in these revolutions at all because it means losing their autonomy and what they are afraid of then by the loss of this autonomy, by the loss of their ability to rule themselves to some extent, is that that Jewishness will get lost. Assimilation would end up in basically becoming Christian. And that's how many Christians view this as well. You know, when they, and I know that the case of Amsterdam better perhaps than the others, but um, you have Jews in Amsterdam who are saying, including one man who becomes quite important in, in one of the first Dutch parliaments, uh, well then, you know, if they are receiving equal rights, it means that they have to give up on, for instance, um, their beards. Men have to start shaving their beards. They have to look entirely like us. They have to start celebrating our holiday. Um, so from both sides, it is seen as assimilation, not equality. And um, you talk about the different revolutions, but particularly, like you mentioned briefly, but let's 
unpack it a little bit. The American Revolutionary War may have been the war first war in which the Jews served on an equal basis, completely. Yeah, that's one with one American. That's not my statement. I'm just citing, you know, I believe it's Samuel Resnick who, who wrote this about the American Revolution, which makes sense when you look at the important roles that, you know, some Jews had in, in certain localities in the American Revolution on the eastern seaboard. Uh, Jews often were participating as complete equals. And I think that's significant in this age of revolution where equality is, is of such fundamental importance. Here, for the first time, you find a context, uh, both here, but also in some parts of Europe, where Jews indeed can operate fully equally. And that is a break with the past in which Jews at most were tolerated. And tolerance always still assumes a hierarchy in which, you know, they're not part of the top. Except here, we're also talking about a hierarchy, as you were saying, there was an assimilation expectation. So that's also with the yes. society. That's an interesting point. Yeah. We'll go over to your um, chapter, Aviva, and, and it has a very provocative title, Sex with Slaves and the Business of Governments. Governance, sorry. It's a case study on Barbados. And, and like I said, titles are always interesting to me because you can tell a little bit um, what what's behind it. So uh, tell us a little bit. Uh, sorry, you note that research often overlooks frequent interactions between poor whites and Afro-Barbadians. Why is that? And why do you think it's important? And why do you have such a provocative title? <laughs> well, you're, of course, extremely correct to note the provocative title. I was very aware. I was being provocative. I did it intentionally so. And there are two words in that title that are provocative, slaves and also sex. I chose sex because it's the LCD. It's the lowest common denominator to describe what these relationships were between impoverished and wealthy white Jews and enslaved women of African descent. So you could argue, well, were they, was there a romantic element? Was it utilitarian? Was it brutal, violent rape? And scholars have argued about that, and they've they've reflected on it. And of course, there's there's very it's very difficult to know, and so most scholars just conclude well there there was a spectrum. So the LCD though it, nobody would deny that there were sexual relationships, and these sexual relationships are important because they produce two things. Number one, they could produce a pregnancy and perhaps a live-born child, and number two, they could also transmit sexual disease. So that explains my, my choice of sex. My choice of slaves goes back to my reflection about terminology that Vim and I discussed in the introduction. And that is, we're living in an era right now, the past few decades, where slave has become a dirty word and has been often substituted by enslaved, which is, of course, an adjective, but even sometimes used as a noun. And I found, and Vim, if I may speak for you, also found that, that this is a mistreatment of history because their status was slaves. That was their status. They called themselves slaves. They were legally slaves. Were they human beings? Well, if you need to emphasize that as a scholar, that's a problem. <laughs> you know, something so obvious. And, um, and so I, we decided that consciously we we're not going to impose our own terminology on our collaborators 
because it's part of an, an unfolding conversation, whether we say Sephardic or Portuguese Jew, whether we say slave or forced worker or enslaved person, that's part of an unfolding conversation and it should be up to the scholars. But that explains the title and I, I wanted to see, this was also an experiment, this chapter, what happens if instead of centering race, we centered class and we considered these men who were having sex with enslaved women if we considered them not as whites necessarily, but as poor people who are salaried employees of a synagogue and who cobbled together an existence, and it was a pretty miserable existence according to both themselves and the people who hired them, and what if we looked at these enslaved women as also disenfranchised economically? And what happens there? And if you, if you look it through that lens, then you also have to look at the scholarship on poor whites and some wonderful archaeological work has been done showing that the material culture of poor Christian whites on Barbados was a shared material culture with enslaved Africans, meaning that they were using the same pottery, probably engaging in the same commerce, and probably shared more than just material culture. They probably shared a great deal of world outlook, and of course we know families. There was a, a misunderstanding that no sex occurred between lower class white Christians and enslaved women. But of course, we know that's not true in part by looking at this material culture. And so that that is what I tried to do in this chapter. I think it is important to, to center race when you deal with many topics, including Atlantic Jewish history, but I don't think it should be at the expense of emphasizing class. That's an important piece here. And there are a lot of as we've been discussing, a lot of significant and important pieces here that are not necessarily explored in other places. So let's um, close out the book discussion by just telling us why, what was so important and why did you feel this drive to need to publish this book after that workshop? I think we had the idea that we wanted to do something pioneering, that during the workshop there were ideas floating around, especially in the, the piece that became the chapter by John Dixon, which is historiographically, which I think is a marvelous way to start the book, um, where we realized that there has been so much emphasis in especially American Jewish history on exceptionalism and identity and Jewish achievements uh, to 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 reveal the importance of dealing with Jews in history. What we wanted to show is that all of that may be true, but at the same time, Jews are part of larger networks, of larger entities. And um, at the same time, we wanted to see, to, to emphasize that this is not just, let me put it this way, historiographical intervention. It's not just the way we decide to conceive of Jews in the past. No, it's there. When you read the documents, you realize that when you are, let's say, a Jewish merchant in 18th century New York City, you are very much connected to Amsterdam, but also to Curacao. There is an Atlantic world which is very relevant to you. And to only emphasize the North American context, whether it's colonial or you know early republic, um, means you're not doing justice to the world in which these people lived. So I think that was one of the underlying ideas behind this 
volume to show a pass that we think has um, is is not often acknowledged. And if I may add to that, I trained early on as an American Jewish historian with Jonathan Sarna, and I got a wonderful tutelage as his student at Brandeis University. And in a way, I saw this volume as an invitation to American Jewish historians who don't focus on the early modern period to say, look how much there is to do. You can, you know, you don't have to. Being an American Jewish historian doesn't mean that you have to do 20th century, 21st century, or even late 19th century. You can go back in the past, and there are so many projects to do. And yeah, you get it from this book, and I hope that it will continue. As you said, the series of case studies really helps us reframe the study of colonial and earlier uh, Republic-era American Jewry, and hopefully will expand this field of study. So thank you for that. At the New Books Network, we always like to ask, what do you, what's next? What are you both each, I guess, I don't know if you're doing it together, but each individually working on next. <laughs> Sure. So my current project is on Ottoman immigrants in the West, and I'm looking at Ottomans of all sorts of backgrounds. So Jews, Christians, and Muslims, Armenians, Greeks, Syrians. To for In order to do that, I had to retool linguistically. So I studied Arabic for three years. I'm about to enroll in Barsi. I'm very excited. We have a new professor at my university. And eventually I need to learn Ottoman, which is, you know, the old Turkish as well as modern Turkish. I'm looking at their immigration experience through the lenses of citizenship, so their struggle to become citizens of Western nations, including the Allied nations during World War I, for example, Britain and France. And I'm also looking at their material culture, especially the carpets that I imported. So the um, most prominently Armenians and also Sephardic Jews were purveyors of the Oriental carpet in the West, that is Europe and the Americas. They were extremely prominent and they translated their native cultures from the Middle East to fit the tastes of their Western clientele. And so that is what I'm working on. It's a combination of a citizenship study and also material culture and business study. So you like bringing together many different entanglements <laughs> in many different what version. Yes, Vim, please. Yeah, my book uh, that I, I've started on is, is very different. Um, I'm staying with the age of revolutions. And my question was, when I began this project, um, the people who cannot read and write, you know, the the underclass, whoever they are, um, how do they experience the, uh, this revolution, these revolutions? Um, are they part of it? What do they think about it? So I decided to organize the book around the concepts of hope and fear, uh, which are often closely connected. And I'm focusing on peasants in Europe, from France to Russia, uh, on indigenous peasants in the Andes, and slaves throughout the Americas. So very different groups, but they have much more in common than you would think uh, at first sight. And uh, let me give you one example. There's going to be a big part of the hope section of the book what I find is that they all share a belief in the goodness of the king, the emperor, the queen, the czar. It's this imaginary uh, alliance, which is sometimes called naive monarchism, popular monarchism, where they believe in the goodness of the, the, the czar or the king or the queen. If only that person would find out about their plight, they would change everything. Everything would be good. And their idea about these revolutions is that the time has now come. 
um, everything that is standing in between us and happiness is going to be removed, whether it means the taxes and the tax collectors, uh, whether it means the feudal structures on which these these poor peasants in Europe operate, because their their fate was often, you know, so dreadful, you know, came very close to to slavery. Um, so what they see in this age of revolutions is signs that finally it's beginning to happen. And it has to do in part with the revolutions themselves, but also with, for instance, debates in the English parliament about the, the ending of slavery or the, the reforms undertaken by kings who have nothing to do with the age of revolutions, but who are forced in the international competition, the international rivalry of the, the big powers who are always at war, certainly in the Napoleonic period, to um, make their countries work very efficiently in order to have taxes flow into the state coffers so that they can pay for the wars, which means that they have to make their countries work efficiently uh, and undertake major reforms. And if, you know, serfs in Poland or Russia or slaves in the Americas hear about the king undertaking reforms, it can only mean one thing. It's the end of everything, you know, bad in their lives. So we're definitely going to have to listen to, their, to, to talk about that too, because I don't understand where the material is coming from when you have people that don't read it, right? We will save that for the next time. Um, thank you both. We've been speaking with Professor Aviva Ben-Or and Professor Vim Kluster about their book, Jewish Entanglements in the Atlantic World. It has been a true pleasure. Thank you so much, Dorora. A pleasure to speak with you. Yes, same year. Thank you.